it, I mean, not only curing herself, but gaining all that knowledge. I mean, to me, it's a bit like, well, somebody takes up a religion, but there's an enormous amount of enthusiasm that comes with the discovery. I think in her, because she was so educated, she had that ability within her. Like, she knew she had more in her than just being a wife and a mother. You've just heard from Mrs Snook's daughter Sylvia from a phone interview I did in 2014 when I began researching and writing the biography of her mother, the prominent West Australian naturopath Dorothea Snook. Hi, I'm Greta Pools, and this is episode two of Raw. Dorothea Snook was a woman who lived three distinct phases throughout her life. There was her childhood, growing up in the Wheatbelt Farming District of Western Australia, the decade she spent as a wife and mother to seven children, and then the career she considered to be her vocation, her work as a naturopathic healer. In today's episode, we'll learn a bit about each of these phases in Mrs Snook's life and meet her remarkable mentor, the Boston and New York-educated Dr Alice Caporn. It's a hot summer's day in Perth, Western Australia. The year is 1944, and a tall, thin, 30-year-old woman with dark, wavy hair hails a bus. Her name is Dorothea Snook, and she has recently been told she has a growth that may be cancerous on her liver by her GP, Dr Gell. With Dorothy are her two young daughters, Barbara, who is six years old, with dark hair like her mother, and her youngest child, the fair-headed Isabel. The family board the bus and Dorothy ushers the girls into a seat in front of her. She sits and watches the traffic passing, tears stinging her eyes, but she won't cry because at this point in her life, having liver cancer seems the least of her problems. It is rheumatoid arthritis that is impacting most on her life. Following 22-year-old Dorothy Greenham's marriage to Leslie Snook in Fremantle in 1936, She had nursed her mother Emily for six years until Emily's death from rheumatoid arthritis at the age of 65. Emily had suffered an agonising death in an era before any effective treatment or pain relief was available for the condition, and Dorothy knew what was in store for her. Emily was the mother of 13 children, with Dorothy the youngest. The family believed Emily's mother, Jane Cook, was the great-grandniece of famed British sea captain James Cook, a heritage that would take on special significance for Dorothy in the years to come. Captain Cook was born in 1728 and died in 1779. He is recognised for his many seafaring achievements, but also for the use of diet, specifically foods high in vitamin C, to cure scurvy. In a family history book on the Greenham family of Corder, some 200 kilometres northeast of Perth, Dorothy describes her mother as a tall, stately woman with black curly hair and brown eyes who was an excellent cook and grew her own herbs. Emily could make possum taste like delicate chicken 
and her emu pies were never suspected to be anything but the finest lamb. Emily saw herself as the head of a farming enterprise and organised her family accordingly. No one ever got sick, Mrs Snook wrote, beyond a tummy ache, and on these occasions, she noted, the castor oil bottle was always there, a cure for all evils. Emily dispensed a regular dose of castor oil once a week to her family and sprinkled a pinch of sulphur over their porridge every second day. These were the only medicines ever used, Mrs Snook recalls. Dorothy describes herself at this time as a big eater of red meat, and she had grown up drinking fresh, full-cream milk straight from the cow. But in recent months, her weight had plummeted, and she now weighed around 35 kilos, or 77 pounds, almost half her normal weight. I was dying, she later wrote, and Dr Gell could do nothing to help her. But Dorothy had been raised with a strong Christian faith, and there was a higher power she turned to. Dorothy's faith would be tested in decades to come, but she had been raised a Methodist and was at this point a devout Christian. After the shock of Dr Gell's news about a growth on her liver, Dorothy had prayed to the Lord to show her a sign of what to do, and in characteristic fashion, she gave God a seven-day deadline. Now on the bus, as her two young daughters chatted animatedly, Dorothy's ears began to tune into the conversation of two women sitting across from her. She was about to get her sign from God and the first introduction to the woman who would change her life, Dr Alice Capone. Here is how Mrs Snook recalls the event from her brochure for the Radiant Health Centre from the 1980s. At 30 years of age I was a twisted mass of humanity, so much in pain that I was literally crawling on the ground. I was a victim of arthritis and I had a growth on my liver. Even with the best medical treatment, my condition was worsening. One day, while travelling on a bus, I overheard two women talking about a lady who lived in Netherlands, who was able to heal even the most severe diseases through a combination of proper diet, exercise and sunshine. Her name was Dr Alice Capon. She was a registered nurse in WA and had degrees she obtained in America as a naturopathic doctor and osteopath. On March 6, 1944... A desperate Dorothy Snook was carried into Dr Capone's naturopathic clinic at 1 the Avenue, Netherlands. Dr Capone immediately laid Mrs Snook on a bed with a slanted board. The foot end of the bed was raised about 18 inches higher than the head, a treatment Dr Capone prescribed to correct what she diagnosed as Mrs Snook's floating kidney and dropped stomach. Mrs Snook lay on the slanted board for the next three months, day and night. She later wrote that fallen organs could be gently massaged back into place, but only a slant board could keep them there, a popular concept at the time. Under Dr Capone's treatment, every morning Mrs Snook was taken out to absorb vitamins from the sunshine. She sunbathed for 20 minutes a day, gradually working up to two hours. Soon she was brown as a berry and found these private hours a golden opportunity to partake as much as I could of the sun's healing rays. Mrs Snook quickly became a devotee of Alice Capone's unique Pilates-style floor routines. Her progress with these exercises must have been rapid, 
because two weeks later, on the 22nd of March, 1944, she wrote in her diary, "Learnt to stand on my head. For the first 14 days, Mrs Snook's diet consisted of nothing but fresh, ripe fruit, always consumed raw, with only the one kind of fruit eaten at each meal. She never tired of eating fruit and ate about three or four fruit meals a day. If I only wanted one peach, I'd only eat one, she wrote. If I wanted six peaches, I'd eat six. And she noted that after many years of chronic constipation, her bowels had begun to function normally. As Mrs Snook progressed on Alice Capone's diet, lunch changed from fruit to a raw vegetable salad, olive oil, dried fruits and a large piece of cooked pumpkin. She chose not to eat bread as she felt it would place more work upon her liver. She continued with her fruit diet at night, adding almonds, dates and a banana to her diet if she felt like it. The smell that came up from her gut into her throat at times she described as vile, but she persisted with the treatment. Despite being declared a hopeless case by the medical profession, Mrs Snook's crippling arthritis vanished in a matter of months while on the diet. She wrote that it felt as if her arthritis was being torn out at the roots, like a tree pulled out of the ground. However, she later wrote, it was to take 10 years of careful eating before she overcame her liver cancer diagnosis. Just a note here, I cannot verify the liver cancer diagnosis, Mrs Snook refers to it at various times as a growth, a shadow, and also as a cancer on her liver. She names the doctor who gave her the diagnosis as Dr Gell. Now back to 1944 and Alice Capone's naturopathic hospital at the prestigious Perth address of One the Avenue, Nedlands, where Mrs Snook paid Alice Capone seven Australian pounds in pre-decimal currency for two weeks' board, which is equivalent to around $250 per week in today's Australian dollar value, or 177 in US dollars. Every aspect of Mrs Snook's health and well-being improved on her new diet. My whole body started to vibrate with new life as my whole system was stirred with the powerful cleansing action of the fruit juices, she wrote. Displaying the formidable self-discipline that marked her character, Mrs Snook rigidly maintained her diet for a full year, she then modified her evening meals to introduce cooked vegetables and potatoes baked in their jackets, adding, at this stage, an occasional slice of wholemeal bread. She writes, I gained no weight for the first six months, just a few pounds. Then I went ahead like wildfire. I could have often given up hope in the first six months as all my relatives were against me and thought I was surely doomed to die. It is easy to imagine how Mrs Snook's new raw food diet, which did not include meat or dairy, the foods on which she had was raised, must have alarmed her family. The word vegan was only coined in 1944, so this style of eating was completely unknown to the majority of the population at the time. But Mrs Snook was undeterred by what people thought. She recalls on one occasion, while being on a particular dietary menu, that she and Leslie attended a Greek wedding. She writes, I wondered how I was going to get on for my fruit tea. However, there, right in front of me, was a bowl of rosy red apples. The other guests were so busy eating all the other goodies on the table that they had no thought for the fruit, so I was left with my apples. Two Greek gentlemen, 
directly opposite me, were highly amused and, I must say, extremely interested in my complete meal of apples. I suppose I must have consumed seven or eight, and from that time I was known as the Apple Girl. But the wonderful thing was that I was able to dance till midnight on this fruit meal with no feeling of exhaustion whatsoever. Mrs Snook's life was profoundly changed by the time she spent in Alice Capone's naturopathic hospital. I was so intrigued by what appeared to be a miracle cure that I wanted to know more, she wrote. I studied under Dr Capone for the next six years and ultimately became a registered doctor of naturopathy. It was Dr Capone who began calling Mrs Snook by the name of Dorothea, a name which Mrs Snook used from then on as her professional name. Having learnt this new dietary and health knowledge, Dorothy Snook felt a duty to share it with others, to save lives, as hers had once been saved. With my right hand in God's, I went forth, she wrote. It appears Dorothy Snook had not heard of Alice Capone before their meeting in 1944, Yet Alice Capone was a controversial figure in Perth and had made headlines in the newspapers several years beforehand, as Dorothy would do 50 years later. In this regard, being publicly humiliated and vilified in the press, I see a parallel between the lives of Dorothy and her mentor, Alice. They were also from families of 13 siblings, although Dr Capone was the eldest and Dorothy the youngest. They both dedicated their lives to the nature cure, and helping out to heal others through nutrition and what Alice Capone described as the five links in the golden chain of life, essential to all animal life, natural food, drink, sunshine, fresh air, exercise and sleep. Mrs Nook faithfully followed the diets and teachings of Alice Capone. So who was this 70-year-old naturopath who changed Mrs Nook's life? Although Alice Capone had studied and lived in America, she was Australian and born Alice Miriam White in the historic wine-growing town of Angerston in South Australia on August 14, 1875. Alice came from a religious and reformist family. Her father, Edward White, worked in education and her mother, Louisa Hart, was active in the women's temperance movement and interested in international politics. Alice trained as a nurse in Western Australia and worked as a bush nurse in Coolgardie and Kalgoorlie in the isolated goldfields regions of Western Australia. At the age of 29, in 1904, Alice married Henry Charles Capone, who was from Boulder, Western Australia. Around this time, she became a passionate convert to Mary Baker Eddy's New American Mind Cure religion and embraced the doctrine that disease was a state of mind which only divine faith in the will of God can cure. Christian science should not be confused with Scientology. It is a religion that may be more familiar for its well-regarded magazine, reading rooms, and its followers' refusal to get medical treatments such as blood transfusions. We will hear more about the influence of Alice Capone's belief in the power of the mind on Mrs Snook in a future episode. But for now, my focus is on Alice Capone's discovery of the nature cure. At the age of 44, Alice left her husband behind 
and travelled alone to America, where she stayed for nearly two decades. She arrived in Boston in 1919, the year Prohibition was introduced, a move she would undoubtedly have approved of. She worked as a Christian science mind-cure nurse, living in Bostonian homes, healing housebound patients by means of Mary Baker Eddy's teachings, which involved getting the patient to clear their minds of all negative or extraneous thoughts and focus on the divine spirit to get better. Six years later, in 1925, the year Alice turned 50, she was still in Boston, but all was not well. In an Australian newspaper article from 1939, she recalled, At the age of 50, I was an old woman, seriously ill, staring into the grave. And in her 1939 magazine Modern Living that she published monthly in Perth, Alice describes herself at this time as being down and out, suffering from heart, liver and stomach problems, as well as having insomnia, fallen arches, poor circulation and swelling in both her feet and the lower part of her legs up to her knees. So she tried Dr Benedict Lust's Nature Cure diet. The following is a 1904 jingle that describes Benedict Lust's dietary and health philosophy. I've edited this slightly for the sake of brevity. Mr Lust can make you well if you let him lay the plans for what you eat and wear and his commands obey. He's got an Eden out of town where you'll get no meat and walk mid the trees as Adam did in birthday suit complete. Roast beef, cigars and lager beer you'll never want again when you've been healed by fruit, fresh air and rain. It's very cheap as well as good, this wondrous nature cure, and if you take it home with you, its blessings will endure. For all the ills of mankind, the cheapest and the best, is Mr Lust's great nature cure put it to the test. Benedict Lust was born in Germany in 1872. He is recognised for pioneering holistic methods of healing in the United States and founded the formal discipline of naturopathy in New York in 1901. In my view, Lust had a profound, if somewhat unrecognised, impact on food, health and culture in Western society over the 20th and 21st centuries. Lust is credited, for example for helping to introduce yoga and Eastern philosophies into America, and he was an influential figure in the growth of the whole food and organics movement. Lust's belief in nudism as a health therapy and his involvement with the Back to Nature Lebensreform, or Life Reform movement, along with Sebastian Kneipp, Louis Kuhn, Rudolf Steiner, and also Bill Pester and Arnold Ehret, the latter who, like Lust, all emigrated to America, is credited with influencing the emerging whole food and sexual revolutions that swept America in the mid-20th century. Although Lust founded a formalised practice of a variety of nature cure therapies under the name of naturopathy in New York in 1901, he by no means invented this type of healing. Remember that Hippocrates, often credited as the founding figure of modern medicine, was making statements like food is medicine and natural forces within us are the true healers of disease over 2,000 years ago. Like Mrs Snook, 
and many others who discover the nature cure, Lust's journey back to health began after contracting tuberculosis in America in the late 1800s. He became so ill that at one stage doctors prepared his death certificate. Lust returned to his native Germany to die and was successfully treated by the celebrity monk Father Sebastian Kneipp, a towering figure in the history of the nature cure movement, who along with Lust and others of their generation was said to have inspired the Indian spiritual leader Mahatma Gandhi. Cured from tuberculosis, Lust returned to America with the aim of promoting Kneipp's teachings to the new world. Here's more on the history of naturopathy from Stephen Myers, a professor in natural, complementary and integrative medicine at Southern Cross University and a qualified naturopath and medical doctor and one of Australia's leading figures in complementary medicine, a discipline which aims to combine the best of both natural therapies and medicine for patient care. During the 19th century in Europe, there was a fairly significant movement to spa therapy where people would go to sanatoriums for exposure to air and sunlight and rest and relaxation and fasting and hydrotherapy, all part of the nature cure tradition. And nature cure is really about getting back to nature, getting back to the fundamentals of what it is to be a human and what wellness is actually composed of. Lust in developing naturopathic medicine saw that there was a great opportunity to take all of those therapies but combine them with the developing sort of nutritional science that was actually occurring, develop them with herbal medicines, with electric therapy, with magnetic therapy, with um, physical therapies that were starting to develop. So, you know, interestingly enough, it was in a period that D.D. Palmer developed chiropractic and still developed osteopathy. There was a lot of these particular schools that started to actually crop up around a similar sort of time. And it was certainly Lust's conception that naturopathic medicine should be an umbrella practice of these sorts of therapies. Lust trained in osteopathy and he was also a licensed medical doctor. He and his wife Louisa, also a naturopath, were key figures in the early naturopathy movement. One of Lust's students and close friends was Frederick W. Collins, a chiropractor who also held degrees in medicine, naturopathy and osteopathy and who founded the first national university, New Jersey College of Osteopathy, Mecca College of Chiropractic and the United States School of Naturopathy. Alice Capone became a student of Frederick Collins and studied for a Doctor of Naturopathy at his college, thus inheriting the Lust and Kneipp tradition of nutrition and the nature cure. At this time, the redoubtable Alice Capone was becoming known in America for her series of Pilates-style exercises, known as the Dr. Capone Exercises, and also claimed the moniker of America's famous nutritional scientist. Frederick Collins wrote of her, Dr. Capone has developed an entirely unique system of biological exercises. She has a very profound understanding of biology or man's relation to the vital forces of nature. We are happy to have been associated with Alice Capone in our college from which she graduated with high honours. 
Alice Capone took out American citizenship and lived in the United States for close to 20 years. She undertook four degrees in America, including a PhD from the American National School of Physical Culture, a PhD from the Clements Institute. In one newspaper report, she claimed that her degree in philosophy was from the Columbia University. She was also a doctor of naturopathy and had an osteopathic doctor qualification. Dr. Walter Seigmeister, an early 20th century American raw food advocate and recently rediscovered mystic who wrote his PhD on Rudolf Steiner, said of her, Truly, Alice Capone is an amazing woman, and what is better, her knowledge of food science and endocrinology is profound. I believe she has an immense future. Alice Capone also studied with another leading figure of the early naturopathy movement, Dr. Robert G. Jackson, originally of Toronto in Canada, author of How to Always Be Well, published in 1927, and founder of the Roman Meal Company of Original Grain Bread, a brand which is still in business today. Dr. Jackson wrote of Alice Capone, I am proud of her achievements, for she is one of my students. However, she has forged her own way in entirely new fields of scientific research. Alice Capone has my blessing. While I have been describing naturopathy as the nature cure in this podcast, the profession's dictionary definition is a system of alternative medicine based on the theory that diseases can be successfully treated or prevented without the use of drugs by techniques such as control of diet, exercise and massage. Like his fellow nature cure pioneers, Benedict Lust believed in bringing strength to the individual rather than curing a specific disease, which was the approach adopted by the medical profession. He required students to study not only herbalism and hydrotherapy, but such subjects as self-culture, mental regeneration, pure love, soul marriage, mental and divine healing, spirit unfoldment and God consciousness. Within every person, Lust believed, was the potential for, and I quote, massive muscle, surging blood, tingling nerve, zestful digestion, superb sex, beautiful body, sublime thought, pulsating power, glorious freedom, perpetual peace, limitless unfoldment, and conscious godhood, end quote. Naturopathy, as Benedict Lust defined it, utilised nature's forces. Whether from water, herbs or sunlight, each nature cure therapy essentially operated in the same way, by assisting nature to remove what was termed the accumulation of morbid matter from the body, thus restoring the human being's place in the natural order of the cosmos. This brings us to another important concept in the discipline of naturopathy, the concept of vitalism, the belief that the processes of life cannot be fully explained by the laws of physics and chemistry alone. Here's Professor Stephen Myers once more on vitalism, a term sneered at by scientists, which is inherent in the belief system of many natural therapies. Vitalism comes from the concept that life is a special entity. And it is, it's animated. This concept of, you know, that, that Shelley had about the concept of animating dead flesh was the idea of imbuing life. 
interestingly enough, we as human beings have never been able to actually bring life into being at this particular point in time. All of the traditional medicines talk about the fact that life energy uh, is something that actually permeates through living systems. So we talk about it as the vitality in naturopathic medicine. In Chinese medicine, they talk about it as qi. In Japanese medicine, they talk about it as qi. In Ayurvedic medicine, they talk about it as piranha. And all of these systems have this fundamental respect for the concept of living energy. I need to say that vitalism is uh, one of those terms that actually is often confused, that it actually is attributed to often religious overtones. I came across a paper by Greco called The Vitality of Vitalism, about why vitalism as a concept has not died, even though it's actually been attacked and attacked and attacked. And one of the things that Greco points out, which I thought was actually quite delightful, is that, that vitalism has a polyvalent definition. So it has a definition that has a greater interaction with a religious connotation. So the concept of vitalism being a connection with spirit. While I don't have any difficulty with that as a belief, vitalism in naturopathic medicine comes from the other component that Greco pointed out, which was a naturalistic vitalism that comes from the concept of life in the natural world. And so that's the vitalism of naturopathic medicine, that we believe that life is a special entity. As such, you know, we believe that you know, life obviously needs to actually be valued and respected. And there's something about life that is an entity that we need to take in its totality. The concept that comes from systems thinking is that you can take all the parts of a system, but it's not until the system actually functions do you get what they call emergent phenomena. Life is an emergent phenomena. We aren't just a pile of magnesium and potassium and phosphorus and chlorine. and We're more than the sum of our parts. And that's the vitalistic philosophy. It comes from this concept of the respect of life, believing that the living systems have dynamic living energy. In acupuncture, that would be the meridians, which have actually been you know, measured. You can actually put a galvanometer over, over skin and actually trace these acupuncture meridians that uh, they're potentially, you know, in Ayurvedic medicine, centres of energy in the body. I don't know that there's actually any proof for that yet, but I, as a scientist, I remain open-minded to that concept. It's about this concept that we have to actually approach people who are living systems as a totality. We can't actually just deal with a liver or a toenail. We actually have to deal with a living person. And that living person needs to be seen as the sort of emergent phenomena of all of the things that make them up. Having grown up in a rural landscape in South Australia and practised as a nurse in the remote goldfields districts of Western Australia, Alice Caporn tired of big city life and ultimately felt the lifestyle was detrimental to health and happiness. So, in 1936, at the age of 61, Alice boarded a boat in New Orleans, bound for what was then known as British Honduras and today called Belize, 
with the intention of establishing her own health sciences colony. Upon her arrival, she met with the colony's governor, Sir Alan Burns, who was particularly anxious she should establish her colony in the higher altitudes where there was less malaria. At the time of Alice's visit, the country's population numbered just 1,300, 50 of whom she estimated were white. British Honduras was an unusual destination for a woman. Alice appears to be travelling on her own as she makes no mention of any companions in her correspondence, later claiming to have lived among the natives in the absence of any civilised habitations. She took a boat with 12 others heading to the Guatemalan border, describing this as a most interesting experience. We passed several places where they were tanning crocodiles and I believe this is quite a big industry at the mouth of the river. All along the banks we saw banana plantations, citrus fruit orchards and little villages where the natives make their living supplying bananas for export. Food for the boat passengers consisted of red kidney beans cooked with pork, with white rice and tortillas made from corn, fried plantain and a cup of tea. After travelling by barge and then by horseback towards the Guatemalan frontier, Alice Capone inspected various plantations, eventually purchasing a plantation in jungle land where she employed staff to clear the land and plant banana crops. Alice was aghast that the locals did not consume the bananas they grew. Banana crops were exported while green or fed to the pigs. The people of British Honduras do not appreciate the food value of bananas, she complained. I have gone through miles and miles of plantations and asked if I might have a banana only to be met with blank looks. They practically never see a yellow banana. Alice lived on her new banana plantation for a year before returning to the United States with the intention of raising further funds to support her fledgling health sciences colony. I decided to return to America and arouse interest in my health sciences colony, she wrote. I needed more money to carry on my project and I wanted to set it on the right basis by forming a company. However, fate intervened. Alice received word her mother Louisa was dying and wanted to see her eldest daughter one last time. So in December 1937, after a stop in Fremantle, Alice Capone landed back in South Australia. She immediately made her presence felt in an interview she gave upon disembarking with a journalist for the Advertiser newspaper on 8th of December 1937, which was titled, Dietitian Takes Us to Task. In the article, Alice claimed Australians did not understand the value of citrus fruits and almonds. Australians should be the healthiest, strongest and most virile people in the world, but they were among the most unhealthy, she told the journalist. She said more people died in Australia from cancer than elsewhere and eating meat was most likely the cause. Australia was one of the biggest meat-eating nations and in her view, meat was a dangerous food for man. She also thought Australians had bad teeth and their diet lacked sufficient foods such as green leafy vegetables, celery, cabbage, lettuce and spinach. She declared vegetables and fruit should be eaten raw, particularly in the early stages of the diet, or at least not cooked to death or overly flavoured with condiments, making them indigestible and useless for the functions of the body. She also strongly advocated correct posture and carriage, 
and spoke of the benefits of sunbathing. Alice soon recovered her mother's health, and along with her mother and nearly blind brother George, boarded the Indian Pacific train that runs from the east coast of Australia to the west coast. The trio arrived in Perth on the 10th of March, 1938, almost six years to the day before Dorothy Snook would be carried into her clinic. The same day, Alice, as the nameless woman's writer for the Perth Daily News wrote in an article the next day, swung jauntily into the newspaper's office. Alice wore what was described as a snappy white linen two-piece with short sleeves and brilliant embroideries, bare legs and white shoes. She was described as being as tanned as a Cottesloe bathing bell. The article reported how Alice had recently rejuvenated the health of her 86-year-old mother. Daughter, Dr Alice Capone, PhD, aged 63, came home from America and saw in her mother's home at Clare, South Australia, a bent, sick little old woman who just managed to shuffle to meet her, the article states. However, Alice believed her mother's chief trouble was malnutrition. She's starving, Alice told the journalist. She fed her mother vegetable juices of celery, spinach and carrot and orange and lemon juice. She gave her two fresh salads a day with lemon juice instead of vinegar and fed her the occasional meal of fresh fish but cut meat down to a minimum. Now mother walks two miles every day, Alice told the journalist. While Alice's first encounter with Perth media was positive, it would not be long before she became the subject of ferocious criticism and ridicule. Two events triggered this hostility. Firstly, Alice gave a series of town hall lectures titled Why Cow's Milk Causes Mucus, Colds and Tonsillitis. Quoted in Perth Sunday Times newspaper in June 1939, Dr Atkinson, West Australia's Commissioner for Public Health, stated... I strongly condemn Alice Capone's attempt to belittle the value of milk. What are the qualifications of this woman to do so? The Sunday Times editorial took up the cudgels on behalf of Dr Atkinson, writing, For some weeks, the public of Perth has listened wearily to a lot of absurd statements concerning the value of milk made by a lady named Alice Capone, who claims to be an expert on dietary matters. Because there are many sick people in Perth who depend entirely or mainly on a diet of milk and are liable, by heeding this ridiculous talk, to seriously mitigate against their chances of recovery. The Sunday Times contends that it is colossal impertinence for anyone to try and lead Perth mothers into thinking milk is bad, not only for their children, but for adults as well. The Sunday Times asks Alice Capone to explain why she is attempting to influence Perth people to become party to a health cult which confounds the first principle of health. The paper advised the public not to listen to Mrs Capone's stupid theories and stated that steps should be taken to suppress once and for all the ridiculous teachings of Diet Crank Capone. Also in that year... Alice applied for a licence to sell what she called the first truly wholemeal bread in Perth, a linseed loaf. She sent a copy to Dr Atkinson, but it is safe to say he did not consume any of it. Alice's criticism of the existing breads 
sold as wholemeal, were that they were made from white flour, with some bran added in. But her application for a licence to sell the bread was refused, with Dr G.L. Sutton from the Wheat Products Prices Committee commenting that he did not like 100% wholemeal bread. It was, he said, too coarse and not at all appetising. Alice responded in a letter to the newspaper that what appealed to Dr Sutton was beside the point and that he was merely a creature of habit who liked the things he was used to eating. It is a fact that wholemeal is coarse because it has a fair amount of natural roughage, she wrote, and few authorities will deny that most people do not get enough food which contains sufficient of this necessary constituent of all natural food roughage. But her views were lost on the West Australian Bread Manufacturers Association, whose secretary, a Mr E.J. Edmonds, wrote to the Sunday Times, emphatically affirming the dietary value of white bread and decrying what he described as Alice Capone's pernicious virus of American hooey and go-getting for the aggrandizement of themselves and detriment of the public's pocket. But was Alice right? Eighty years later, the value of milk is still debated, but there is significantly more scientific and public support for Alice Capone's views. And while white bread is still widely consumed, there is no question that Alice Capone was right about the importance of whole grains and dietary roughage or fibre in the diet. Alice continued living in Perth until 1950 when she remarried to William L. Ireland, a mining engineer. After her marriage, she hyphenated her surname and went by the name Caporn Ireland. Mrs. Snook's daughter, Isabel, recalls Alice Caporn and her new husband heading off in a huge caravan for Australia's remote Northern Territory, which has a tropical climate and may have reminded Alice Caporn of her Central American sojourn. Isabel recalls how the elderly couple had to wrap themselves in sheets soaked in cold water to cope with the extreme tropical heat. Alice Caporn and Mrs Snook remained good friends and kept in touch until Alice's death in South Australia in 1969. By this time, Mrs Snook was establishing herself in Perth as Alice Caporn's successor and published her landmark book that would establish her place for her in the history of veganism and vegetarianism in Australia. The 1965 Was Man Intended by Nature to be a Herbivorous Animal or a Carnivorous Animal? She had inherited Alice Caporn's knowledge and in two decades would develop the gut cleanse diet that was also used as a cancer diet. So what is the science behind Mrs Snook's dietary views? And what does the latest science of the gut microbiome reveal about the importance of nutrition in fighting disease? That's next week on Raw. I'm Greta Pools, and I hope you'll join me then. If you have enjoyed Mrs Snook's story so far, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you could take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, I would appreciate it. If you would like to learn more, visit my website, gretapools.com, for my biography of Mrs Snook, which includes a gut cleanse diet, plus Mrs Snook's own writings. The links are on the episode's webpage. Mm-hmm.